the 31st of July, and you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast on economies and markets from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamar Baig, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 23rd episode. No geopolitical issue is perhaps more consequential to our times than the simmering China-U.S. friction. Last week, during our biennial conference, Eurasia Group's Robert Kaplan said the U.S. and China have diametrically opposed ambitions and goals in the South and East China Sea, hence a conflict is inevitable. Professor Kishore Mahobani, in the same conference, cast a discussion in a long-term civilizational context, seeing China's rise as merely a return to trend for an ancient power, which the established but relatively young superpower, the U.S., is struggling to come to terms with. So clearly, China-U.S. strife is here to stay. But what does it mean for our region here in Asia? Today, we talk about that with Dr. Lin Kuok, Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute of Strategic Studies. Dr. Kuok oversees Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment, one of the Institute's signature publications, and the Southeast Asian Young Leaders Program. She's responsible for developing research on key Asia-Pacific security issues. Welcome to Kopi Time, Dr. Kuok. Thanks so much for having me, Timer. That's uh, great. Uh, hey, you and your colleagues at IISS recently published the Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment 2020. Uh, just as an advertisement for your publication, uh, share with us some of the key themes uh, explored in it. Well, um, I think that two uh, overarching themes. The first one is that of major power competition um, and how that continues to grow in the region. So within that broad theme, there are assessments of the uh, U.S.-China relationship, as well as um, an examination of the implications for Asian security of the collapse of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, as well as um, a look forward at the tra- uh, trajectory of Washington's alliances and security partnerships in the region, and also, of course, um, an assessment of the continuing challenge uh, posed by North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile programs, not just to the security of the United States, but to Japan and South Korea as well. Um, under the second overarching three theme, um, that looks at um, the contributions that middle powers uh, make to Asia-Pacific security. So within this broad heading, we look at you know, Japan's increasingly assertive regional role, as well as uh, the implications of worsening relations between Japan and Korea, as well as how Indonesian policy towards issues like the South China Sea continues to evolve, as well as the role played by Australia, as well as um, countries in Europe uh, in seeking to support the balance of power as well as the rules-based order in the region. Wow, that's a broad sweep, a critical sweep, and I wish we had the time and scope to go over each and every one of them, but this is just a short podcast, so I suppose we will stick with the first team in your uh, annual assessment, which is the China-U.S. relationship. Uh, You know, we at DBS have had quite a bit of exposure to this issue in the last week or so uh, in our Asia Insights Conference. Last week, we discussed this with Robert Kaplan of Eurasia and Kishore Mahobani of National University. Uh, We had a client call just a couple of days ago with Ambassador John Emerson, um, who used to be U.S. Ambassador in Germany. And although different people of different focus, it's been all back to this issue of the great power rivalry that we're seeing. Uh, And clearly it's been uh, deteriorating over the last couple of years. So perhaps you can start off uh, giving us your assessment of what has driven this deterioration in US-China relationship. 
Well, I think um, there's a tendency to pin the blame on um, President Trump. Uh, and certainly, I think he's driven part of the problems. He's taken a rather uh, transactional approach towards uh, China in terms of insisting that you know China purchase more from the United States. So his trade war hasn't helped uh, relations. And now his seizing upon the China threat issue to boost his re-election chances as well has you know hurt US-China relations. But my view is that we've basically had a slow fire burning in the US-China relationship for quite a while, and it's now coming to a boil. Um, we've seen uh, relations rocky over a whole range of issues, um, the South China Sea, trade, technology, developments in Hong Kong, and its implications for Taiwan and human rights. Um, I think there's a, um, I think, with so many issues which are problematic in the relationship, any relationship would uh, be under some stress. But I think what we've seen with um, the relationship is that these issues in a sense have become less thorns in the side of the relationship causing its deterioration, um, say in the last quarter of last year, but rather these, these issues have become means by which the other side has sought to gain advantage over the other. And this in turn has at its heart great power competition and a fundamental anxiety about the other's intentions. And I think that in a sense is driving um, current US-China relations, not trade or the South China Sea per se, those, those are certainly uh, problematic issues, but the fact that both sides distrust each other and are seeking ways by which uh, to keep the other in check. Now, I don't think US goals are particularly clear, but looking at um, uh, observing its actions or words over the last couple of years, I think we can identify three possibilities in terms of its goals. You know, the first possibility and probably the most reasonable is to ensure that China plays by the rules. So we want powers to and to adhere to international law and norms, even as competition becomes fierce between them. So that might be the first, that the, the objective that the United States seeks. But as we've gone along, I think we've also seen uh, increasing propensity for the United States as well to ensure that China does not surpass the, uh, does not surpass US power and influence in Asia. Um, and we see that in the fight in the US, uh, in the South China Sea, I think we see China seeking to exclude the United States from the South China Sea and the United States signaling that it's a power that's here to stay. Um, and the third possible objective, and we've seen that in the last month or so, and this has been increasingly disturbing, is an, a possible objective that the United States wants to change the nature of the Chinese Communist Party or the CP, CCP itself. And I think, I think we've seen US um, words and actions, I think increasingly suggest that it's either the second or the third goal that the United, seeks, uh, United States seeks to achieve. Um, Lynn, wow, you've, you've taken us to rather uh, challenging uh, aspects of this uh, matter quite quickly. Um, so let's talk about the second and the third. The second one, I think it's clear, uh, even in areas of trade and tech, uh, the sort of uh, market access and investment restrictions that uh, the U.S. government has put in place, which in some ways have actually gotten uh, pushback from the U.S. business community, but uh, they have gone ahead nonetheless. 
Um, but as far as areas beyond that, where the goal, ostensible goal is to get China to play by rules, but seems to be the real goal is not allow China to surpass the US. Um, the uh, one that I would like you to touch a little more on is this issue of Asia, that there is this competition for Asia's soul and Asia's might between the US and the Chinese. What is the historical context which makes the US feel so strongly about holding on to its sort of hegemonic control over the region? I think the US sees um, that it is a Pacific power or now it calls itself a, an Indo-Pacific power. And um, it has a desire to uh, reassure the um, allies um, to which it has given security commitments, Japan, you know, the Philippines, that uh, South Korea, uh, that it has it has the wherewithal to actually stay in the region and support um, uh, stability in the region. And I think this is something, I mean, we talk about US hegemony, um, but this is as if it's, it was something negative, but in a sense, US um, presence in the region has allowed um, the region to enjoy a security umbrella which has kept Asia out of the rain for some decades now and allowed it to prosper. Um, if we take away, if we take away that um, umbrella, what we might well see is, say, Japan, South Korea going nuclear, which um, which would deeply uh, uh, destabilize destabilize the region. And we might also see less of a balance of power in the region. And so we might have bigger countries in the region seeking to exert coercion on smaller countries in the region. And I, I think that is a that is um, something that we will we should seek to avoid. So so. Um, the U.S. is doing it both for its own interests, commercial and other interests in the region, as well as supporting its allies. But I think also the region appreciates the U.S. presence here. And I think we saw that quite clearly in um, the recent uh, foreign affairs uh, uh, commentary that uh, Prime Minister Lee Sien Lung uh, did for uh, the Foreign Affairs magazine. That's right. Uh, but Lynn, when you say the U.S., um, do you mean that the U.S. military, the strategic thinkers in the U.S. military, the State Department, the Washington, D.C., intelligentsia, they all have this view? Or there is a tendency that the whoever comes to the White House gets swayed by the U.S. military establishment, which is perhaps a little more hawkish on these issues than the civilians would be? Um, I, I don't think it's correct uh, to say I don't think it's necessarily correct to say that there is a difference of opinion um, between the civilian and the military leadership um, on the issue of uh, China, for instance. I think whether it's um, the White House, the State Department, or the Department of Defense, I think they've all issued uh, uh, policy statements since 20, 2017, all identifying China as a common, as, as a threat for the United States. And I think they're all working at, um, at EDEM. Um, they're all working um, to, to, to the same um, set of policy goals, namely to ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific. And you see also as uh, something that spans the political spectrum that the fact that Trump and the Republicans are in power now and that Biden and the Democrats may be in power a year from now, that won't necessarily change the substance of this matter. I think, you know, we're still seeing some lack of clarity in terms of what the United States ultimate goals are. 
um, as we discussed earlier, but I think the view of China as a threat is shared across the aisle. And we've seen Republicans and Democrats agree on precious little uh, during this administration. Um, and we've seen great division uh, within the United States. But I think on the issue of China, the voice, the main voices sing in unison. So um, I don't expect to see very much of a change, um, say, if, President, uh, if uh, Joe Biden were to come into power and it were a Biden administration, um, there might be marginal changes in terms of rhetoric. So perhaps rhetoric might be less inflammatory and that would be a good thing because that could bring about more stable relations between the two uh, superpowers, um, even if fierce competition persists. But I think um, we are going to see uh, US-China rivalry competition in a quite heated state uh, for some years to come. Um, and indeed, even under a Biden administration, we might actually see competition uh, become fiercer. Um, we, if it's, uh, we generally see a democratic administration place greater emphasis on human rights. And um, talking to some of uh, the people who know um, uh, his uh, Asia advisors, um, th these are, these Asia advisors are fairly, there's some of them that are fairly ideological in their approach too. So it's not so much, you know, China's behavior is problematic though it certainly is, but China or the CCP is evil and we need to ensure that uh, we, we, we um, push back against this evil empire. We, we saw hints of that in Secretary Pompeo's address at the Nixon Library, I think it was last week. That's right. Um, yeah, and, and he adopted a very strident ideological stance calling uh, communists communist, um, liars and saying that we need to disbelieve and um, verify everything rather than believe but verify. Um, and we saw several, um, I, I read several democratic uh, commentaries after that, and their objections were less with the, uh, the ideological approach adopted by um, Secretary Pompeo, but more by the fact, uh, the objections lay more in um, the double standards of the Trump administration that has um, you know, undermined multilateralism, which could be a tool in, um, man, uh, in, in pushing back against China, and also its double standards in you know, abetting and and uh, in, in their view, betting and destroying democracy at home. So it wasn't so much the content of the speech that some of these analysts um, objected to, but the double standards in the, the current US administration, in their view, not uh, uh, walking the talk, right? So. No, like uh, I was on a call with uh, Ambassador John Emerson a couple of days ago. Uh, he served both under Clinton and Obama, and he did not come across as some sort of a dove as far as China was concerned. And uh, uh, but the one thing that he pointed out, and I think that's already implicit in what you have said, is that a democratic administration may focus on the first pillar that you mentioned, which is the play by the rules aspect, and also the other issue that you just touched upon that maybe focus more on multilateral ap approaches to dealing with China as opposed to uh, a unilateral approach. Um, Lynn, the third pillar that you talked about, uh, which is the most troubling one and perhaps could create the most amount of uh, global stress is this uh, notion that Secretary Pompeo and others would want to put so much pressure on China that it creates some sort of a change uh, dynamic within the CCP. Uh, explore a little bit uh, of that for us, please. Yeah. Um let me first have a look at you know the play by the rules and the multilateralism um, uh, sure. and multilateralism. I think 
we cannot stress enough how important uh, these objectives are, because I think we are seeing a situation where there is a complete lack of trust between the two superpowers, and we're not going to be able to restore that trust anytime soon. So the mechanisms by which we ensure that however heated competition is, it still takes place within a certain framework. What that framework is, is first, you know, international law and norms, so playing by these rules, and second, um, multilateral institutions which uh, and and the, the rules that those set out um, and and however much competition takes place that should uh, those frameworks uh, the, the competition must always take place within those frameworks to ensure that things don't get out of hand so that is critical and I think we as the international community need to look more closely closely at, at these issues as mechanisms by which to keep competition in check. Now on regime change, I mean, it's it, it's important to stress that Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo never talked about regime change. He shied, uh, he shied away from using those words, but he did talk about, you know, the Chinese people needing to change the CCP and that change dynamic, as you pointed out, is um, hugely concerning. Um, I think I, I worry about an overemphasis on an ideological approach. First, because you know it unnecessarily deepens tensions between the two great powers. These powers, China and the United States, have legitimate grievances against the other. And I think if we focus on those grievances, they are difficult to resolve. But once you start talking about the other side, you know, as evil uh, by their very nature, those um, issues which are thorns in this in the side of the relationship become much much harder to resolve so first an ideological approach deepens tensions unnecessarily deepens tensions and I think the other reason why I find this deeply concerning is quite apart from how China might uh, view uh, this we also have to think about how other potential US partners and allies think about this issue now on the very day that uh, Secretary Pompeo talked about communists being liars. The United States um, actually signed a memorandum of understanding with Vietnam, promising to uh, help Vietnam in its fight against illegal fishing. And this was, of course, targeted or directed at China's encroachment or illegal encroachment into Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. But Vietnam uh, is not a liberal democracy by any standards. And I'm not sure how it would have taken to um, the United States calling uh, all communist liars. And I'm sure at the back of its mind, Vietnam must be thinking about how reliable a partner the United States can be given this uh, push uh, towards an ideological war. Um, the, the flip side, of course, of this is, you know, how the United States might uh, think about its allies and partners in the region. Secretary Pompeo talked about a coalition of democracies. Now, a coalition of democracies, by its very definition, might exclude certain very important important partners um, in the region. Vietnam is one, uh, Singapore is another. Um, if we look at Southeast Asia, I don't think there is a liberal democracy in sight. So is the United States by its an overly ideological approach, would it, would it alienate potential partners to its own detriment? Um, and third, I think the problem, the third problem I think would be um, if it leaves it could leave a strategic space open for China, which could, in a sense, be counterproductive to the very objectives that the United States seeks to achieve, namely democracy. So 
if it decides that our partners can only be democracies, and that hasn't happened yet, thankfully, then what does that mean for you know, who countries choose to position themselves with if, if they go with China? Um, and what does that mean for any gains, any democratic gains in the countries uh, moving forward? So I think on, on several counts, um, deepening of tension, alienating of potential partners, as well as opening strategic space towards China, to China, um, I think um, this, this, this hint at regime change or a, a movement towards a more ideological approach is deeply, deeply troubling. Right, so that's the unintended consequence. If you push too hard and uh, you have all these countries which are not keen on taking sides, then you inadvertently give China some uh, space to maneuver. So let's uh, explore that a little further. You talked about the China, Vietnam, US nexus and how uh, things are getting complicated there. So what does this worsening of tension mean for the other countries in the region? Which are the ones you think are the biggest flashpoints going forward? Well, I wouldn't say flashpoints. Um, I think it's quite clear um, that the tensions between the two superpowers are, first of all, clearly hurting prospects of recovery from the pandemic, um, just on a purely health perspective, uh, from a health perspective. Um, but it's also hurting prospects for gro growth moving forwards, right? Um, and Beyond that, I think, um, less obviously, it's also worsening, um, the worsening relations also narrow countries' strategic options. Uh, the United States often says that it's not forcing countries to choose between the two superpowers, but I think many will find it difficult, if not impossible, to avoid taking sides in a world that's increasingly decoupled, whether in economic or technological spheres, whatever the United States must, might say. And, as PM Lee pointed out in his recent article for Foreign Affairs, um, this places most countries in Asia, especially in Southeast Asia, in a very difficult bind because the US security presence is critical for the region and China will find it very difficult to step into this role even if it wanted to, um, and even if it were trusted by the region, despite its uh, increasing military strength, it's just nowhere near the United States at the, at the moment. Uh, the United States, moreover, continues to be the largest source of foreign direct, direct investments in much of Asia. And uh, China, on its part, is the largest trading partner of most Asian countries, including all US allies in the region. And, it's, and it has been ASEAN's largest trading partner for over a decade. And, countries looking out towards China also look at, you know, China having the wind behind its economic sales. So in a sense, you know, having to choose between the United States and China is perceived in the region as having to choose uh, between security and economic growth and prosperity. And it's, it's quite a difficult uh, position to be placed in um, for countries in the region. Absolutely. I remember being in a dialogue with General Luhut of Indonesia, and he echoed exactly what you said, that uh, he felt that, you know, a country like Indonesia, for example, has found it very uh, much to its interest to have deep military cooperation with the U.S. Navy uh, and, and generally speaking, U.S. military. But at the same time, the deep trade relationship with China is an indispensable one. And I think he sort of thundered in the talk that I heard that nobody should ask Indonesia to pick a side because it is not a uh, viable uh, or realistic option for Indonesia to pick a side. Um, the uh, other issues, of course, the 
and navies facing each other or their planes flying from their aircraft carriers and flying very close to each other in the South China Sea region. And then there's, of course, all these challenges that the U.S. and other uh, countries in Southeast Asia have made towards China as far as its overtures in the South China Sea is concerned. Um, where are things going there? I mean, this worsening of relationship, could that spill over into military tension in South China Sea? Um, yes, I, I fear it could. Um, I think what we're seeing in the South China Sea is inc um, increasingly uh, worrisome. We've seen, um, even during the course of the uh, past seven months uh, during the pandemic, an increase in Chinese activities in the South China Sea. And um, this has taken various forms. So the first, um, the first type of activity that we've seen China um, increase, uh, uh, well, China has actually increasingly encroached upon the exclusive economic zone of Indonesia, Vietnam, and most recently, Malaysia. And, you know, such incursions have sometimes been quite violent. It's sunk a, a Vietnamese fishing boat, and it has harassed, um, that, that wasn't violent, but it, it sought to harass uh, the West Capella drillship, which was conducting survey operations for Malaysia's state oil company, Capella. Um, this is a clear violation of international law. A tribunal um, in the Philippines case against China actually found that, you know, the coastal states in the South, around bordering the South China Sea are able to enjoy the exclusive economic roads unencumbered by China's uh, nine dash line or any claimed exclusive economic zone from beaches or group of beaches. So, so that's been problematic. And the second uh, reason, uh, the second activity that China has been engaging in in the South China Sea has been to maintain a near constant presence around features occupied or administered by other countries, including the largest feature the Philippines occupies in the Spratlys, T2 Island. Um, it first sent um, vessels uh, to surround this feature in December 2018. And since then, we've had at times, you know, hundreds of Chinese vessels surround this. So there are increasing numbers of, you know, Chinese vessels rubbing up against um, the vessels um, of other Southeast Asian countries. And that, that, uh, that can pose uh, potential problems in terms of incidents at sea. But China's activities in the South China Sea have not been confined merely to skirmishes with its smaller Southeast Asian neighbors. It's, it also continues to object to assertions of maritime rights and freedoms by the United States and its allies. And um, I think, as you point out, this is uh, very worrying um, given an environment of heightened um, uh, tensions between the US uh, and China. And, as, and including recriminations around COVID-19. So it's a very bad environment. And, the, and just a couple of months ago in April, we saw US and Chinese warships come within just hundred meters of each other, which greatly increased the risk of incident. And the last time this happened was a near miss in September, 2018, when against a backdrop of worsening US-China trade relations, a, China, a Chinese warship came within uh, 41 meters of a US warship while it was conducting a freedom of navigation operation in the Spratlys. And you know that warship had to maneuver just to avoid a collision. So um, these, these recent um, near misses, I think are worrying not only because uh, China decided to um, to, in a sense, interfere in lawful assertions of maritime rights and uh, 
maritime rights in the South China Sea, but also because they were in breach of a memorandum of understanding with the, which the United States Department of Defense and China's Ministry of National Defense um, entered into in November 2014, which seeks to regulate the, um, the behavior of both parties so that they can safely encounter each other, both at sea and in the air. Um, so I think, you know, an environment of deteriorating relations, an environment where, you know, agreements for safety, uh, safe encounters at sea and air are, are breached, um, an, an environment where there are increasing number of vessels, of Chinese vessels rubbing up against, you know, both Southeast Asian vessels as well as U.S. Um, vessels um, and allied vessels. It's, it's, a, it's a very bad environment um, and, and one that is ripe for potential uh, incidents at sea. Lynn, that's very helpful. And you have explained to us uh, in great detail how this looks from the nations in Southeast Asia, how this looks from the perspective of the US. Exact same set of escalations and developments, how are they looking in Beijing? Well, Beijing obviously has quite a different perspective on the South China Sea. It sees itself um, as uh, sovereign over the features in the South China Sea and therefore entitled uh, to reclaim or to transform small features into large artificial islands, you know, build uh, air and naval facilities on them, as well as to militarize them because, you know, those, these are the prerogatives of a sovereign uh, nation. Um, however, I think uh, it's wrong in that respect because you know, these features in the South China Sea or sovereignty over these features in the South China Sea is hotly disputed. And in the case of at least one feature in the Spratleys um, or two features in the Spratleys, uh, Mischief Reef and uh, Second Thomas Shoal, the tribunal uh, in the Philippines case against China in 2016 actually found these to be low tide elevations within the Philippines EEZ and therefore within the Philippines jurisdiction and control. China also claims that, you know, it has historic rights around um, the, uh, in the South China Sea within its nine dash line uh, and um, this has been an argument that it's made to, as, it's, as it encroaches on the exclusive economic zone of um, other Southeast Asian countries. Um, but I think that um, argument um, or that perspective has been uh, rejected by the tribunal when it found that um, insofar as China was claiming historic rights to uh, maritime zones recognized under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, these were not valid. Uh, uh, the tribunal also rejected any claim, Chinese claimed um, exclusive economic zone from features in the Spratlys in the South China Sea. So, you know, that, that's um, not really a valid perspective. Uh, China also objects to uh, U.S. and allied um, assertions of maritime rights um, and freedoms in the South China Sea. Um, it's, it's quite technical, so I'm not gonna go into that. But um, again, these contravene um, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And um, these powers are perfectly entitled to exercise high sea freedoms within the international waters of the South China Sea. Um, there are also several narratives that China's uh, pushing. Um, one of them is that, you know, it's not China that has been um, destabilizing the South China Sea, but really foreign powers which are stirring up trouble in the South China Sea. Um, and um, I think that that has that is something that 
flies in the face of uh, facts because we've seen um, various uh, countries in Southeast Asia actually to lesser or greater degrees um, caution against or, or, or decry um, worrying developments in the South China Sea. And I think those were very uh, uh, subtle, but clearly targeted at China. Um, so from China's perspective, China does have certain perspectives on these issues, but um, where, whereas it might have valid concerns in certain, certain other areas, say the Belt and Road, where you know every um, uh, the, the narrative is quite negative against um, uh, these infrastructure projects, and perhaps China has a valid um, argument that these projects actually benefit the region. I think in the South China Sea, its perspective, uh, its perspectives um, don't quite gel uh, with reality as well as um, the, uh, the situation or the, the rights permitted under international law. Right. I, I recall uh, Professor Mahogany addressing this issue in the context of China's sort of congenital insecurity that it's a massive populous country with not enough natural resources and hence it always feels that it needs to have some degree of buffer uh, something that the U.S. pursued I guess in the last century or so and hence enjoys hegemonic um, uh, supremacy in the vicinity of the United States and North America so I thought so his point was that you know China sort of craves that uh, but you're right that from its regional partners perspective I think also China has done a poor job of building friendships it has a lot of eager economic partners, but uh, genuine friends, uh, hard to find. Um, Lynn, I recently, uh, both you and I were actually on a call with uh, US Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and in which I was kind of struck that he really strenuously highlighted the importance of the US-India defense relationship. I mean, so far in this talk, we've discussed Southeast Asia, but I think it would be remiss to not talk about this issue where the US seems to be putting more emphasis. Uh, what role can middle powers like India play in this whole China-US strife? I think um, with great power competition, which is dramatically worsening the strategic environment in the region, uh, the importance of the contributions of middle powers uh, increases. And um, I think I see their, their role as twofold. First, to maintain the balance of power in the region, and second, to strenuously defend the rules-based order. Um, I think India as a naval power, um, or you know, even powers like Australia, Japan, um, they need to be able to continuously um, or regularly assert maritime rights and freedoms to ensure that um, the vital waters, waterways of our region remain open. Um, I think as a matter of law, this ensures that passage and other high sea freedoms are not lost through lack of use. And as, as a matter of practice, it ensures that international waters do not become a Chinese lake. Um, the other role that middle powers um, can do is to work with other allies and partners to uh, build capacity in the region, whether um, in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief or in enhancing maritime domain awareness, which um, helps to give coastal states greater confidence in uh, dealing with uh, coercive behavior or unlawful behavior uh, in, the, in the waters around them. And um, I think finally, and perhaps most importantly, Middle powers need to be able to keep in mind that when attempting to defend a rules-based order um, in, a, in a region where development needs are very high, 
they are only likely to gain traction if they are able to afford uh, development opportunities to the region as well. Now, China is an attractive partner to many of the countries in the region, not because of ideology, going back to the earlier arguments that we made, but because of the opportunity that China offers for these countries to, you know, to become more connected, you know, to develop themselves, to lift themselves out of poverty. And I think this needs to be uh, very much at the forefront um, of middle powers thoughts when they consider how they should be dealing with the region. We must not forget that we're in the middle of a pandemic and post pandemic uh, countries are going to be seeking to build, rebuild you know, their, their economies. They're going to need to bolster their healthcare systems. Um, and this is something that middle powers can very much step into um, a role uh, to play. So uh, India probably has its own challenges as well. Um, and perhaps, you know, might not be able to play that strong a role in terms of, you know, the development of healthcare systems. But India has certainly great medical expertise that can be offered to the rest of the region. And it can also work with um, its partners like the United States, Japan and Australia in terms of infrastructure, um, working on infrastructure investment in the Indo-Pacific. Um, it doesn't need to work alone, but it can work with its partners and allies. Um, so I think India is clearly an important uh, Indo-Pacific actor that's been identified in the various um, uh, policy documents that the United States has issued. Um, and um, while we've seen Australia and Japan um, very much step up to the plate in terms of seeking to play a greater strategic role in the region, I think there's still a big question mark over the extent to which India is uh, willing to, uh, to engage more uh, with the region in terms uh, from a security or strategic perspective. Um, and I think its recent withdrawal from the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or RCEP has hurt its ability to shape and influence the region. But I think with recent uh, clashes with China on uh, their disputed border, um, there's a possibility that we might see India move beyond its traditional non-alignment policy, which has uh, constrained deeper security ties. There's already been reports of it planning on inviting Australia to join its high-level naval exercise Malabar, uh, which usually uh, involves the navies of India, Japan, and the United States. Um, so it's still, um, it still remains to be seen whether or not um, recent developments on its border will lead to greater strategic engagement, uh, a sustained strategic engagement um, in the region uh, moving forwards. Um, but I, in my view, I think old habits of non-alignment will probably die quite hard. No, I, I absolutely, you've, you've hit the nail with your hammer, uh, Lynn, because, I mean, India has been a non-aligned actor for a very long time, and it's served itself uh, pretty well. Uh, and, you know, I mean, as you were alluding to earlier about trade partnership, I mean, China is the biggest trade partner of India now. Um, and and the, the recent strife, I mean, I sometimes wonder whether, you know, the bromance between Trump and Modi explains a lot of this sort of convergence between India and the U.S. Or, as you said, there are policy documents which have also identified India as a critical middle power. But, you know, the Irony, I mean, you were talking about how India can play a constructive role because of its expertise in pharmaceutical production and so on. The country that had the biggest window with this was China. I mean, I, this is what I find amazing that the last four months was China's biggest window 
to impress the world with his helping hand, both in terms of fighting this uh, pandemic, as well as you know, debt forgiveness for uh, poor nations that have taken on Chinese debt. Um, and, and it seems to me that window has narrowed and China really has not been able to exploit that. Um, and, uh, and, and now, of course, you know, we, we have the situation where, and as you have rightly said, there is cause for alarm that the rising tension and uh, no sign of backing down by these two strong nations is putting our region under a great deal of stress. Uh, Lynn, any parting words in terms of the very near-term outlook in the next six months or so? What's your sense in, in the region? I think it's going to be a region that is will be looking at um, developments in some alarm. I think it's it's really a very rapidly deteriorating security situation, and um, it's going to be a very watchful region. Um, but it's also going to be a region that might be staying put because in the next, uh, I guess, few months, it's going to be what is the outcome of the uh, U.S. elections going to be, and um, and, and thereafter assessing whether this recent dramatic downturn in U.S.-China relations has been just a factor of the upcoming U.S. elections or something far deeper. And I suspect it's going to be, to be uh, so it's, they're going to find out that it was something deeper, um, more structural problems in the U.S.-China relationship. And then the region is going to be looking forward in terms of what is it going to do next. Like I mentioned earlier, the region um, has a narrowing set of options, um, but I think what it should be seeking to do is to keep those uh, keep those options open as as um, as as much as possible, not by failing to take any sides at all, um, but by adhering its um, by by firmly um, planting itself themselves on the side of international law and norms. Um, and I think in this way, by taking a very principled approach, the region can thereby, you know, ensure that it doesn't anger China as much by, you know, by saying that, no, this isn't about being anti-China, but it's about adhering to the rule of law. And also ensure that, you know, it still keeps the US somewhat satisfied because it shows itself willing to stick its neck out for principles and therefore worthy of uh, further support and assistance from the United States and its allies and partners. Right. We all crave a rules-based multilateral order. Uh, thank you so much for your insightful views, Lynn Koch. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been great. Uh, thanks also to our listeners. Martin Taki produced Kopi Time, which is available on YouTube and major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. You can also find our live streams, webinars, and research publication by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.